You are listening to the Landmark Sermon Series, a sermon podcast nearly 40 years in the making. You'll hear the voices of our church's founding pastors, Dr. James Reeves and Alan McBrayer, as well as others who helped pave the way for City on a Hill beginning all the way back in the early 1980s. Our hope is that these sermons bless you and challenge you in the same way they have blessed and challenged so many others in the past. For more information about our church, visit www.cityonahilldfw.com. From those two passages of Scripture, we take our purposes as a church. Why God has placed us here to accomplish those four things. Remember I said to you at the outset, a great commitment to the great commandment and the great commission produces a great church. A great commitment to the great commandment, which is to love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength to love your neighbor as yourself. A great commitment to the great commandment and the great commission to go and make disciples will reproduce a great church. And then we talked about our third statement last week, which is our statement of lifestyle. Flowing out of our statement of faith, out of our statement of purpose, then there are those seven things that are statements of lifestyle that flow out of what we believe and why we are here. Okay? Today, I want to talk about our Covation Week 1, our Common Statements Week 2, and today, our Common Strategy. You see, when you visit a church... You see what they do, but you do not, do not see why they do it. And we believe very strongly that it's important, if you are considering this body of believers as a church family, as a church home, that you not only see what we do, but you understand why we do what we do. Because you see, everything we do has a reason. There is a method, in other words, to the madness. 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verses 20 through 23, Paul lets us in, have an insight into his life, that Paul wasn't just out there preaching the gospel. He was doing that, but he had a purpose. He had a strategy behind what he was doing. He had a way in which he went about fulfilling the calling that God had given him. 1 Corinthians 9, verses 20 through 23. And to the Jews, he says, I became a Jew that I might win Jews. To those who are under the law, I became as under the law, though not being under the law myself that I might win those who are under the law. To those who are without law, I became as without law, though not being without the law of God, but under the law of Christ, that I might win those who are without law. To the weak, I became weak, that I might win the weak. I have become all things to all men, that I may by all means save some. Now, what Paul is telling us here is that he has a strategy. As Paul went out into the world, he sought to identify with all kinds of people in order that he might be able to win some with the gospel of Jesus Christ, with the good news of Christ. Now, having said that, let me say this. I do not believe that any church can meet all of the needs of all people. And that's why there are all kinds of churches, quite frankly, because there are all kinds of people that come with various kinds of needs. And I'm convinced that each particular church beyond just the basics and the essentials of preaching the gospel and worshiping and and doing uh, discipleship and all those kinds of things that all churches ought to be doing, that beyond those basic things, each individual church ought to seek the Lord's will to discern what is the particular focus or the particular purpose for which God has appointed that particular church. Let me illustrate it this way. 
how many of you listen to the radio? You have particular radio stations that you like to listen to, right? Maybe one, maybe two. Imagine this scenario. I won't ask you what radio stations you listen to, okay? But imagine this scenario. You've got a radio station that plays Bach, Beethoven, Bon Jovi, uh, Wayne Watson. Can you believe I even remembered that name? That's amazing. <laughs> he was way after my time. Uh, uh, then, then a little James Taylor. Uh, then uh, a little Led Zeppelin. And, you know, every song is different. What kind of audience is that radio station going to have? None. It's going to alienate everybody. The people that like Bach are not going to like Bon Jovi. Okay? People that like James Taylor are going to hate Led Zeppelin. They're not going to listen to that radio station. Trying to be all things to everybody and, and try to and focus on nothing, the radio station is basically going to go out of business. And that's the same mentality and philosophy of the church. We're all supposed to be playing music. All radio stations play music. But they specialize in particular types of music to reach particular types of audiences. That's not only good marketing, that's just good sense. So beyond just the basics that we're to be doing, all churches to be doing, I believe that God has called and appointed individual churches to do specific tasks. It's our job to identify God's purpose for us. Our particular, to use as the elders used a few weeks ago, uh, Ken Stiles, he said, to find our niche in the market. I really hate saying that, but in secular terminology, that's basically it to find the particular segment of the particular group that God has called and has appointed us to minister to and particularly equipped us to reach. And then we ought to focus on that. We are the process of doing that. But let me say to you, this process for us has been going on for some eight years that I've been here, a little over eight years that I've been here. So let me give you a brief review, a brief history of the church. There are only two people, I guess, there are some members of the church that are in the room here because we're, we're taking our entire church family through these four weeks of classes. In this room, there are only two individuals that have been here from the beginning. Well, three. Husband and wife and then Jack, whose wife is sick. The Audie and Wright and Jack Young. They came out here in the middle of 1982. There was a little church over here on John T. White Road that called the John T. White Road Baptist Church. It had been out here for some 40, 45 years. Back when this was wilderness, was not even uh, incorporated into Tarrant County. John T. White was a dirt road. This was the badlands of Tarrant County, as a matter of fact. The police would not even come out here. There was a rough, rough area of town. That little Baptist church started in a tent back in the 40s. Through the years, it would flourish a little, and then it would go down. It would flourish. It would go down. In the early 80s, it got down to a handful of people, and they were going to just have to close the doors of that little church. Rather than do that, the one remaining deacon that was alive uh, the others had been shot and some had been thrown in jail. Uh, <clears throat> went to the deacon body over at Sagamore Hill Baptist Church and asked the deacon body there if they would present it to that church to take that little church over as a mission to not allow it to die. Jim Bryant was the pastor at Sagamore Hill at that time. The deacon body agreed to do that. A group of young couples that were in a couple's Sunday school class at Sagamore Hill led by Alan McBrayer, who's now my associate pastor, uh, moved out here lock, stock, and barrel a number of young families, to breathe some new life into this little church that was out here in this area. At that time, the name of the church was changed to Cornerstone Baptist Church. Started off Baptist Chapel, I think, and kind of evolved into Cornerstone Baptist Church. Uh, Jim Bright, the pastor at Sagamore, would come out here and preach an early service, then would go back to Sagamore Hill for a while, 
Then when Dr. Bryant left Sagamore, the little church called uh, the little mission, it was still a mission at that time, called Dr. Tommy Lee as interim pastor, who's a seminary professor in the New Testament department at Southwestern Seminary. And Tommy interim pastored the church for about a year. He just basically came out and preached. And then the leadership of the church dealt with the ministry needs of the church. In January 1 of 1984, I came to be the first pastor of the Cornerstone Baptist Church. The church was begun on the premise of doing some things different. And in fact, that's why they called me. They were looking for someone who was not cut out of the traditional mold that would be willing to do some things a little bit different. The group had been formed originally with the hopes of reaching their high school friends that they'd grown up with, many of them on the east side of Fort Worth, who were not Christians and were no, are, were no longer in church. They really wanted to come out here and do some things that would reach that group of people. And some of them were, through the years, uh, were reached. But what was discovered, though, was when they found a pastor that wanted to do some things different, when some of the things different started to happen, some of them couldn't handle it. And that was okay. They realized that what they had said philosophically was not exactly what they wanted practically. Some of them went back to Sagamore. Some obviously uh, moved off in, in, in various places. And now, I don't know how many of those original couples are still here. Maybe four or five of the original, probably 15 couples that, that came out here in the very beginning. The church, as I be said, began right there in that little John T. White building, little red brick building. 1987, we purchased this here. Uh, we paid $200,000 cash for it and did some interesting other kinds of things that I'll not go into. But in 1989, we'd outgrown this facility several years ago, so we moved into a school, moved into the Hanley Middle School, and intending to be there for one year. That was stretched into two and a half years. We thought that when we moved into the school that we'd begin immediate construction on this facility and uh, some problems with architects and various sundry kinds of things took place. We learned a lot of valuable lessons and got beat up a little bit along the way. And we wound up spending two and a half years in the school. 1992 in February was when this facility was completed. It was an eight and a half year project because literally from the first two months that I came to be the pastor of this church, we began praying and planning toward buying land and building buildings. And eight and a half years later, or almost about eight years later, it finally happened this 21,000 square foot building. As you can well imagine, in that many years, we faced some incredible obstacles. Some of them were of our own making, and some of them were not. Uh, we did make a few and create a few obstacles along the way for ourselves, and we learned some very, very valuable lessons. We have approximately $900,000 of our own cash in the land and the buildings, and we have a loan with the Baptist Church Loan Corporation of $350,000 at 7%. So that's not bad, but it took eight and a half years to be able to do that and to only have that small percentage of debt to value. Through the years, though, and I've told you the story to kind of give you a panorama, uh, an overview of the history of this church. Through the years, we have been trying to figure out who we are, and that's been tough. Uh, sometimes we thought we knew, and at other times we were convinced that we didn't. A lot of it had to do with a lot of uh, youth. Um, I was young when I came here. I was uh, 29 years old and uh, had pastored for only three years. Um, I'd never faced a situation like this. Many of the men that were here and the women that were here had never been uh, in a leadership position in the church. The Sagamore Hill had all the older people had always been in leadership, and these had been the kids that had grown up. And so we had a lot of lessons to learn. 
and we were trying really and truly to figure out who we were. But there are some unique factors that have evolved over this eight and a half year period of time that serve to explain who we are. And there are two key factors that I want to talk with you for a few moments about, about us. One of the things that we realized through the years that has finally kind of been put down on paper is that we as a group and me as a pastor, we are very conservative theologically, okay? We are very conservative biblically. We believe in a strong, strong biblical basis. The scripture is our sole authority. We talked about that a little bit last week. But along with that statement, there is another state, there is another thing about us that has evolved that's a, a little bit strange because these two don't usually go together. Although we are very conservative theologically and biblically, we are very non-conservative in methodology. And if you've been in churches very much through your life, you know that those two don't usually live together. Usually a strong conservative theological position will result in a very rigid fundamental approach to doing things and a very traditional approach to doing things. But that's not true of us. Along with our conservative theology comes a very off-the-wall, if you will, approach and mentality toward methodology. Now, those two facts about us mean two things. I mean, first of all, or we hope that they mean these things, that when people come to this body of believers, they will hear the Scripture, whether it's in preaching whether it's in the teaching classes or whatever we're doing, we have a firm commitment to teaching and preaching the truth of Scripture, not just the opinions of people. The second thing about that, though, is that because of this non-traditional methodology, oftentimes that truth will come in non-traditional methods. It will come as much as possible free from man-made traditions and restrictions, and we're still learning what that means. Do you understand what I'm saying? Conservative in theology, non-conservative, very, I hesitate to use the word liberal because that's a, a flash word, but non-traditional in methodology means we preach and teach the scripture, but oftentimes we will package that in a very non-traditional package. Now, what are some of the things that we do that are a little non-traditional? Let me talk about that for a moment. You're, you're already aware somewhat of our celebration worship style, which is not a traditional Baptistic worship style. I, it's interesting. I, well, I don't want to tell that story. I'll tell it in a little bit. Uh, the second thing that we do is that we have not only deacons in this church, but we have elders as well. Now, in a Southern Baptist church, that's quite unusual. It's not unheard of. There are other Southern Baptist churches I know of that have elders and deacons both. But in the traditional Southern Baptist Church, the pastor is considered the elder. And then you elect deacons who function as servants in his, in his administrative body often. We have elders and deacons. I am an elder. I'm called the presiding elder. But we also have lay elders that are elected, that are godly men, five of them that are uh, appointed by God and affirmed by you, the church family, to lead in the spiritual oversight of the church. The deacon body then deals with the physical uh uh, dealings uh, of, the, of the church needs. So that's a little non-traditional, elders and deacons both. Third, is that we don't operate by committee. If you've been in other churches, you'll know that they operate most by committee. In fact, most churches that have committees have a committee on committees. 
That's interesting, isn't it? Not only do they have a committee, but then have a committee to select the committees. <laughs> I don't know. Maybe someplace they've got a committee to select the committee to select the committees. But it just is a never-ending cycle, and they operate by committee. We started that way in 1984. We started. We had a committee for everything. We had a committee on committees. <laughs> we did. I'm ashamed to say it, but we did because we didn't know any better. That's what we'd been taught. That was the background of the history that we had. And so we just did what was comfortable. We did what was familiar. But through the years, we realized that we were spinning our wheels. We were getting nowhere. And that that system, although at one time it may have been a very good, it may have been a very functional, it may have been a very adequate system. And I'm, I know it was at one time. For us, it no longer was functioning and it no longer was adequate. So we do not have committees. When we have a specific task that needs to be performed that is not necessarily a ministry task, but is something that would fall under the rubric of a committee's work, then the elder body will appoint a committee, just appoint people that will serve on that committee to accomplish that purpose. And then when that purpose is accomplished, the committee is disbanded. There are no this ongoing lifetime committee stuff. For instance, the building committee. When we got ready to begin the process of building, obviously there needed to be a building committee. So a building committee was appointed. The building committee is no longer together because the building is built now. And so it was disbanded when the building was finished. So we don't operate by committee. The fourth thing that is a little non-traditional about us is that we vote on very, very few things. In fact, I want to say that we are trying to do completely away with the word vote. It's not a biblical word, and I'm going to tweak I will not be here uh, somebody may be teaching this class right now. I think I'm the only one that knows the material, so I'm not sure there's anybody else that can teach it. So I don't know what's going to happen. I'm going to be out of town next Sunday, but if I if we don't have the class next week, then the week after that, I'll come back and do session four, okay? I mean, are you confused now? <laughs> you go, duh, what do we do? All right. Uh, I'm going to talk about that a little bit more next week, a little bit more in depth, but let me say at this point that we vote on very, very few things. You see, the reason for that is that when you vote, you are asking people to line up on two sides of an issue. You are structured for division when you vote. In fact, most of the church government, well, the church government that most Baptist churches operate under and a good many other churches, is not based on Scripture. It is based on, on the American political system. And I'll talk about that a little in this next session. I don't want to give all the thunder away at this point. But you think of words like committee, of vote, parliamentary procedure, um, uh, what are some other, um, uh, majority rule. Those are not biblical terms. They're not biblical concepts. They are concepts directly out of the American political system. Now, where is there more arguing and bickering and fighting than in the American political system? So if a church structures itself after the American political system, is it any wonder that most churches spend all their time fighting and bickering. They're structured for it. They're structured for division. And if you structure for division, you shouldn't be surprised when all you have is division. And when you ask people to vote, let's throw this thing out on the floor and let everybody vote, then you are asking people to become adversarial. You are inviting them to become adversarial. And that is not a biblical concept. As a matter of fact, the scripture is very clear that we are to be diligent to preserve the unity of the church. And that means anything that would destroy the harmony and the unity of the church 
we shouldn't do it. Now, if that is not a biblical concept, the concept of vote, what is the biblical concept? The New Testament pattern is very clearly spelled out. The New Testament pattern is that the church is to have godly leadership that God has appointed, that God has gifted, and that the church body has recognized as such, and then that leadership is to lead the body. That does not mean dictatorship at all, but it means godly leadership. Scripture is very clear about qualifications for that. There is to be an accountability structure built in with that. There should never be no accountability for the leadership. The leadership should always be accountable. And the structure that we have is a structure of accountability. I am accountable. Our elders are accountable. Our deacons are accountable. We are all accountable to one another. There's no way in this structure that there could be a runaway renegade that could become a Jim Jones or something like that. We are structured to keep that from happening. But we are structured for leadership. The scripture says in 1 Timothy, let those who rule, rule well. And he's talking about elders. Now, that word rule sounds a little bit rough, but simply the word rule in the original language means to manage. Those who manage the church family are to manage well, okay? So what we do is the elders will come together, we will discuss issues, and we will ask the church, when the decision has been made from the spiritual leadership of the church, we will ask the church to affirm the decision of the leadership. There's always the option that the church cannot affirm the decision of the leadership, but we don't call it a vote, okay? Because we do not want people to have this feeling of campaigning for an issue, campaigning for a side, and all that kind of stuff. Again, I said we'll talk about that a little bit more in the next session. The fifth thing that we don't do that's a little non-traditional is that we do not have a traditional Sunday night service on a regular basis. For the last two and a half years, almost, well, it's been almost four years now, on Sunday nights, we've met in homes, in small group, uh, Bible discussion and uh, support, uh, caring, shepherding kinds of groups all over Tarrant County. Uh, that began in 1988 when I finished my doctoral thesis. Uh, I did my doctoral thesis on the use of small groups and developing them for nurture and care. And we began that uh, in 1988. When we moved to the building here, completed the building, uh, we brought the groups back to the building on Sunday nights uh, just to establish a presence in the community. Probably in the fall, the groups will go back into the homes and there will be nothing on Sunday evenings. So those are just a few of the things that are a little non-traditional. Let me sum it all up by saying this. Because of those things, we as a church are probably not going to be very attractive to people who are looking for a traditional church home. We just accept that. That's not who we are. And if someone is looking for that, then this is probably not the church family for them. There are other church families that will be able to meet their needs, that will be able to minister to them, that they will be that really where they belong. So someone who is looking for a traditional church environment, this is probably not the place for them. Our focus, and here it is, our focus is toward the non-traditional. This is something that has come clear over eight and a half years where we finally come to accept this and agree on this. We place our focus now, and we are admittedly and unapologetically placing our focus to reach two groups of people because of who we are. Let me say who they are. 
They are, first of all, the person that does not know Christ as Savior. Now, every church ought to be wanting to reach the lost. And that's not what I'm saying. But I'm saying beyond that, we are volitionally working to tailor everything that we do from the worship service right down to the Sunday school class to do something that is going to attract that non-believer, that non-Christian out there who would not darken the door of a church for love nor money. We want to be a church, and we're growing in this. We'll continue to grow. We want to be a church that that non-believer is going to look at and say, well, there might be something there for me. And where that unbeliever would come. That means someone who doesn't have a lot of strong traditional hang-ups. Um, when he comes into this place, if he comes, we want him to enjoy it. There's nothing wrong with that. There's nothing wrong. There's nothing wrong with enjoying church. And I, I, I personally, I've grown so much in this area. I look back on my first three years as a pastor and really the first four or five, six years that I pastored this church. And I worked at making the unbeliever uncomfortable. How stupid. He walks in your, man, we got you now. We're going to nail your buns to the wall. I mean, how stupid is that? And we wonder why the unbeliever then goes out and says, see, it's exactly what I told you. All it is is just a bunch of, you know, high pressure tactics and all this kind of stuff. And then what, then what we do in order to salve our conscience and to justify ourselves, we say, well, he just rejected Jesus. And my response to that is, no, he did not. He rejected us. He never got a chance to reject Jesus. We threw up so many barriers in his face, he never even saw Jesus. He rejected us and walked out the door. So you see, we're trying to get rid of the barriers. Those artificial, human, traditional barriers that we're okay with and that we're comfortable with, but that unbeliever, he's not okay with those and he's not, he's not comfortable with those and they become artificial barriers to him hearing the good news of Jesus Christ. In my preaching, I did that. In our programming, we did that. In our worship service, oftentimes we did that. We threw up these barriers to the unbeliever. And then we said, well, we want to reach the lost. And then we didn't come and say, heck with you. Then we say, well, he just rejected Jesus. And then that made us feel good about ourselves, which is stupid. So we're, we're doing everything we can to take the anxiety out of the unbeliever coming to church. The second group that we're trying to reach is not only the unbeliever, but the disen what I call the disenfranchised Christian. And there is a massive number of disenfranchised Christians out there in the community, in the world. And what I mean by disenfranchised, I mean the Christian that genuinely knows the Lord as Savior, but is disenchanted with the traditional church and has quit going. Just quit going. Maybe hadn't gone in 20 years and wants to, but just as disenchanted, is disenfranchised with the traditional church. What we want to do, we want to provide a place and a ministry where that person can say, aha, at last, a place that I can worship, a place that I can serve, a place that I can grow, a place that I can relate to, that I can be at home at. It's, it's interesting, last night, my little boy's... Uh, uh, he plays in two baseball leagues this year. It's kind of by accident that it's happened, but he plays in Mansfield, and the games were rained out last night, so the coach had a kind of a end-of-the-year party for the boys out at the Pizza Inn in, in Mansfield. So I took Zachary, and we were talking, and I would gotten to know some of the, the parents a little bit 
just through the, the, the season, I was sitting down there talking with a coach who was a very dedicated Christian, a member of Red Baptist Church, uh, was talking with him, and there were some other couples that were kind of just around in the vicinity there, and I was talking with this coach about our church, and he and his wife and several others are going to Russia this summer on a mission trip. He was a very dedicated believer, this guy is. And so he was wanting to know a little bit more about our church. And I was kind of telling him some of the things that I'm just telling you. And after about 10 minutes of that, I looked up and there were two couples that had come over and sat down right across from me. They've been over in a booth and they've been hearing what I was saying to this coach. And they came over and this guy looked at me. He said, tell me a little bit more about your church. So I began to talk with him and kind of repeating the basic same things. Come to find out both of these families are disenfranchised Christians. They grew up in fundamental environments. One family went into a, a real hyper charismatic environment for a few years and were never really comfortable with some of the excesses and things that they saw. And so finally they just dropped out of church completely. And here I am, you know, the father of one of the kids happens to be a pastor of a church and I'm just telling the coach here about what we do. And he's overhearing this and he goes, man, that sounds interesting. They may be here this morning. I have to drive about 25 miles to get here, but they, they may be here this morning. And I, and I went home last night and I thought, my soul, how many thousands of people are there like that right within a stone's throw of our church? Who, if they just knew, if there was just a church that was really and truly doing something that would minister to them, that wasn't doing just the same old stuff and wasn't off the wall in excess either, but was right down in the middle. And when I said to him, I said, really what we are is we're a church in the middle. We are not a charismatic in the sense of charismatic church like what you think of. Although we do have some beliefs about spiritual warfare and some things like that that are not traditional Baptist churches, but we're not in that camp, but we're certainly not in this camp over here. We're just kind of right in the middle. He said, man, that's exactly what we want. So that's exactly what we've been looking for because we're not comfortable in either one of those camps. And we just finally gave up. Just finally gave up. There are thousands upon thousands of people like that and there's not a church on the east side of Fort Worth that is ministering to those people, looking to minister to those people. You see, God, I think, has called us, has equipped us, and prepared us uniquely to do that. That's exciting when you see that God has a particular, specific purpose for us. And we need to, we need to glory in that. We need to rejoice in that purpose. We need to promote that purpose. This is who we are. And for so many years, we couldn't do it because we didn't really know who we were. So, the traditional Christian is probably not going to be real comfortable with us. By traditional, I don't mean traditional biblically, because he will be comfortable with us there. But traditional in methodology will probably not be very comfortable. We are in the middle. And I, I just find that's where I find God. You know, we're prone to extremes. It's like the, the mule that, that was blind in one eye. And he was always afraid as he crossed the bridge that he was going to fall off the bridge on the side where he was blind. And so he went so far to the other side, he fell off on the other side. You know, we're just, we're people of extremes, aren't we? We go to this extreme over here and then we bounce off that. We go to this extreme over here. I've got some friends. pastors right now and they're they've swung the pendulum for them has swung all the way from over there and they're all the way over there and i keep waiting for them to come back to where god is in the middle because that's where i find god if i'm an extreme over to the right i miss him every time if i'm an extreme over to the left i miss him every time where i find the lord is in moderation is in the middle 
because I just believe that's where he is. He's not a God of extremes. Okay. So to reach those people, though, we've got to understand why they don't go to church. In order to reach that, those two groups of people, we've got to, first of all, accept the reasons why they don't go to church. And a great deal of research has been done on this. So we just need to listen to the research. Let me give you some of the four or five major reasons of all the researchers that have researched this and have surveyed literally hundreds of thousands of people to find out why they don't go to church. And you know what has been discovered? The reasons that these two groups of people don't go to church are not theological. They're sociological. You rarely will find someone in this country, when you ask them why they don't go to church, rarely will you hear them say, because I don't believe what they teach. There are some that will say that. But the vast, vast majority, it's not a theological problem. It's a sociological problem. And what they say is not, I don't believe what they're teaching is that they're not doing anything that meets my needs. So let me give you these four things. What, at the top of the list is unbelievers and disenfranchised Christians say the music is boring. If you look in our hymn books, most of our hymns were written two or three hundred years ago. And they minister to us. I love them. I love the great old hymns. But to the unbeliever who doesn't have a church background, or to the disenfranchised Christian that got bored with that, they don't minister to him. For the most part. For the most part. The second thing they say is members are unfriendly. They go into a church and, and they're basically a non-entity. Uh, no one seems to even care. The third thing is they say that churches are too pushy. I go to church and they try to cram something down my throat. The fourth thing they say, and this relates to me, is they say sermons just don't relate to my needs. I go and I hear preachers and they just preach and they don't say anything that really meets the needs of my life. So what are we trying to do? That's, that's just four of them. I'll skip several others. So to what are we trying to do? Here it is. If those are the basic four reasons why the unbeliever and the disenfranchised Christian is dropped out of church, then what should we do? We ought to counter those arguments. We ought to counter those arguments as much as biblically possible. As much as if we can stay in line with the biblical truth and counter these arguments, then we ought to be doing it. We shouldn't be throwing up artificial barriers and saying, if you want to come to Jesus, you've got to climb over this 50-foot wall that we've obstructed of our traditions that we love that make us feel warm and all fuzzy inside. So if you want to come be one of us, then you've got to feel the same way we do about these things. That's so foolish. So foolish. So ungodly is what it is. Because I hear Paul saying, to the Jew, I became a Jew. To the weak, I became weak. To the one under the law, I dealt. What is Paul saying? He say, I'm going to, man, I'm, when I get there, when I'm in Rome, I'm going to do as the Romans do. Because then I can relate with Romans. Then I can win them with Christ. So what do we need to do? Well, if we feel like God has called us and equipped us and prepared us to reach these two groups of people, then everything we do within the church family ought to be focused to reach those people. If those are the four arguments, then what we do? Well, we sing music that's contemporary in style. We use a lot of instruments. Basically, baby boomers is who we're reaching. That's who all of you are in this room. Every single one of you would classify as a baby boomer. Some of you are on the low end of the spectrum. A few of you are on the upper end of the spectrum. But we're all falling into the baby boom generation. Baby boomers grew up on Led Zeppelin. They grew up on Elvis Presley. 
So they just, I mean, they like that style of music for the most part. So why would they want to come to church and hear a, a, a great cathedral organ with uh, the, the vibrato? And I love that personally. I love that music. I love that sound. But why? But I've been a Christian for 20 years. Why would they be interested in that and music and words that were written 200, 300 years ago and with all the these and the thousands? They just don't for the most part. So we do music that's contemporary in style. Second of all, the second thing they say is members are unfriendly. So what do we do? We try to be friendly. <laughs> Makes sense, doesn't it? We greet people, but we don't single them out. Because another characteristic of baby boomers is they do not make commitments very easily, and they don't want to be singled out. For years and years and years, we would have a time in this church when we would greet the visitors. Now, those of you who are visiting with us now have never seen us do that because we did that. We stopped doing that about three months ago. But for eight years, that's what we did. I mean, during the announcement time, I'd say, oh, you visitors, y'all remain seated. We're going to stand and we're going to sing and we're going to greet you. And boy, you know, the visitors sit there and all these people standing, these hands coming down out of the sky, you know, shaking it. And we thought we were being friendly, but we didn't realize that for many people, that really makes them uncomfortable. Really makes them uncomfortable. So we began to realize that, so we stopped doing that. Now we try to greet them in the parking lot. We greet them coming and going, but during the worship service, we try not to single them out. We let them just be anonymous in the worship service. The third thing is that we no longer give an altar call. Again, this is something that is new for us because that's what we had always done before. And it's what we were comfortable with. We, quite frankly, I've been uncomfortable with a, with a high-pressure altar call ever since I've been in the ministry. See, I wasn't raised in church, so I didn't have that strong physical attachment or emotional attachment to the altar call of walking an aisle. I was saved when I was 17 in a ski lodge in Ridos, New Mexico. I didn't walk any aisle to trust Christ. But, and I've always been uncomfortable with this, but as a pastor, I just fit it right into the mold because that's what you're supposed to do. If it's a Baptist church, you, give a, you tell a, a, a dying baby story at the end of your sermon to get them all emotional and drag them down an aisle. And I'm good at that. I know how to do that. I know how to do that. I have not done that much in the eight years that I've been in this church as much because I felt real guilty about it. But in Florida, man, I, I could get them down the aisle every single Sunday. Most preachers are good psychologists. You learn how to manipulate people. And the altar call is often manipulating people. Doesn't have to be, but it often is. For the first 1,800 years of the church, there was no such thing as an altar call. It was begun in the 1800s by an evangelist named Charles Finney. I believe it was God appointed at the time. I believe that God used it. It was anointed by the Spirit. But long time after society and culture had changed, in churches we kept doing it. And we're real bad about that. We get something that works for a while, that the Holy Spirit's in for a while, and then when the Holy Spirit withdraws, we keep doing it. Because it's comfortable. It's traditional. It's what we know. It's what makes us feel good. But the unbeliever says, I don't want to go to church because every time I go, they try to cram this thing down my throat. So who wants to go and get somebody, you know, every time you walk in, you go, well, here, here I go. A few weeks ago, actually it's been about two months ago, we had a family who they've gone through my class now. They've not joined the church yet. The wife is a Christian. The husband is an unbeliever. She finally dragged him to church one Sunday. And his arguments were virtually the same argument I've given you here. I mean, just down the line. And she said, no, you've got to come. This church is different. She had come one time. She came on Easter Sunday, kind of church. He said, man, I'm not about to go to a Baptist church. He had some real bad experiences with Baptist churches. Has a Catholic background, but he's an unbeliever. So she finally convinced him to come to church. We came to the end of the message. She said, he poked me in the side and said, here it comes. He was getting ready for this pressure tactic. Walk this aisle. And I didn't do it. 
And afterwards, he said, man, that's incredible. He said, I can't believe it. Consequently, that man has come back every single Sunday. He is in Alan's discipleship class now with his wife. He went through these four weeks. He's now in Alan's discipleship class talking about assurance of salvation, assurance of prayer, assurance of forgiveness. I guarantee you that man would have never come back. If we'd been doing the same old stuff, if I had tried a, a high-pressure altar call, you see, we just got to wake up and, and, and hear the music, folks. We just got to wake up and hear the music. We're comfortable with that for the most part. It makes a lot of us feel real good at the end of the sermon to hear the preacher try to, you know, do this high-pressure thing. That's okay for us, but for the unbeliever, folks, that doesn't cut it. It doesn't cut it. So we finally woke up and decided... If that was something for this time, not to do. Six months from now, I can't tell you. <laughs> I can't tell you. That's one of the beautiful things about this church. Six months from now, if, if the Spirit says give an altar call, I'll do it. Today, if the Spirit says give an altar call, I'll do it. But at this time, I'm convinced the Spirit is saying, don't. So someone says, well, then how do you join this church? We Very simple. You just If you make a commitment at the end of the service, I will give a strong a strong invitation to Christ. We give an invitation. We don't give an altar call. I will give a strong invitation. If someone makes a commitment to Christ in any form or fashion or desires to be a member of this church, then on that registration card back of it, they can check that. We'll be in contact with them. We will counsel with them. At the end of the service, after everything's over, I'll just present those families that are coming to join. There's at least one family today that I will be presenting at the end of the service who is wanting to become a part of this fellowship of believers. You can join three ways. By transfer of your letter from a sister Baptist church, by statement of your faith, which means that you know Christ as Savior and that you have been biblically baptized, believer's baptism by immersion in water, not sprinkling. Okay, we talked about that in the first session, why we baptize by immersion in water. And the third way is by profession of faith, Christ as Savior, and baptism. There are only two requirements for church membership in the New Testament. You got to know Christ as Savior and be scripturally baptized. Those are the only two requirements. So if you fulfill those requirements, then you're free to become a member of this church. The fourth thing that we try to do in response to these things is they say, well, the sermons are not relating to my life. So try to preach on subjects that are practical to people's life. I've been preaching for the last five or six weeks, the sermon series on how to deal with damaging emotions, how to get free and stay free. This morning, I'm dealing with uh, the title of the message is Seven Principles to Sound Mental Health. We all need to hear that. You know, some of us more than others. So anyway, that's that's the process. Okay, now let me go on right quick. Take five minutes and cover this. People come to church and they come to us in uh, at basically one of five different levels. And think of it this way in concentric circles. There's a small circle, then another circle, then another circle. And they get bigger as they go out, like you drop a rock in a, in a water and you get these concentric circles that go out. People come. In one of those five stages, let me start from the beginning and go to the edge, okay? The core. And that's the core of the church. That means those who are committed to ministry. It's a small number in most churches, sadly but true. Should be all of the church. But the core of the church is those in the inner circle that are committed to serving and committed to ministry. The next circle out that is is the people that we call the committed. And what I mean by that is that they're committed to maturing in the Lord, they're committed to loving the Lord and wanting to grow, but they are not committed to serving. Okay, they're committed to grow. They want to grow in the Lord. Then the third circle out from that is what we call the congregation. This is a group that is committed to membership. They are not committed to serving. 
they're not necessarily committed to growing and maturing in the Lord, but they are committed to being a member of the church. Okay? The next, the fourth, is the crowd. The crowd is those people out there that show up on Sunday and attend. They are not committed to membership. They are not necessarily committed to growing. They are not committed to serving. They're the crowd, and there'll be a crowd here this morning, attenders who are here and attend worship. Then there's the fifth circle out there, and that's called the community, and that's everybody else, everybody outside those doors. Now, what is the perp what is what are we doing here? Our goal from the crowd to the core. That's the process of discipleship, to bring them from the crowd out there in the community, not even knowing who we are, through the process, through the stages, into the inner circle, which is the core, which is maturity in Christ. A believer is not mature until he is serving. Until a believer is serving, he is not mature. So we want to bring them from the crowd to the core. How do you do that? Okay, how do you get them from the community to the crowd? In other words, that's just getting them into church, right? Well, first of all, you've got to do some things that are going to meet some needs when he gets here. And we've already talked about that kind of stuff. But we do other things. We send out flyers. We've had a number, gosh, I couldn't tell you how many hundreds of people have come in the last five or six weeks because of that flyer that we sent out on Easter Sunday just to let the church know we're here. I mean, let the community know we're here. Points of contact with membership, people inviting them, trying to get them out of the community into the crowd, okay? Once they get from the crowd, then we want to get them into the congregation, okay? That's the next step. That's committed to membership. That's where you are. You're not a member of this church. You're in that process of maybe making that step from the, the crowd into the, the congregation, which is becoming a member of the church. They have to go from the congregation to the committed. That means we want you to have a desire to grow and to mature in the Lord. So after this class, there's a, uh, six weeks uh, taught by my associate pastor that you'll have an opportunity to go through discipleship. After that six weeks, there's eight more weeks that are taught by one of the elders of discipleship to go through that in material. And after that, if you want to, there's 13 weeks where you can go one-on-one -on -one with somebody in a one-on-one -on -one discipleship kind of relationship to try to get you from just being a church member into committing to growing and maturing in Christ. And then the, the final stage is to go from the committed to the core. And that's where really where we ought to all be. It's where Jesus wants us all to be. And that is serving and ministering. All right, let me wrap it up with this. That's our strategy. There is a method to our madness, in other words. We have a strategy. If you keep this in mind, a great commitment to the great commandment and the great commission will produce a great church. Those four purposes. And then understanding the unique purpose for which God has called an individual congregation for us, it is to reach the unapologetic lost man, to take the anxiety out of coming to church for him so he can hear the gospel, and second, to reach that disenfranchised Christian. I did a little acrostic with our name, Celebration, that kind of helps me to kind of keep these things in perspective. Let me, let me go down the list right quick. Celebration, C, stands for Contemporary Celebrative Worship. E, stands for Encouraging Practical Preaching. L, Love Expressed in Actions. E, Every Member is a Minister. Every member is a minister. That's what the scripture says. B, biblically defined purposes. We got four of them. Shared with her last week, and I went over it just a few moments ago. R in the word celebration is responsible leadership. 
godly leaders that are seeking to lead under the direction of the Holy Spirit. A, acceptance where you are. Acceptance where you are. You see, we have to be willing to accept that unbeliever where he is. When he walks in this door, we may not condone his lifestyle, but we have to accept him. We cannot expect the unbeliever to live like a Christian until he becomes one. And then we try to seek to move him into committed lifestyle. T, target, well-defined. We finally defined our target. Those two groups of people that I talked to you about. I is an inclusive attitude. Our mentality is we want everybody. We want everybody. We want everybody that the Lord sends to us. Everybody. O, openness to change and ability to adjust. Openness to change. Businesses, corporations that are successful are businesses and corporations that are open to change and have the ability to adjust. A business that can't adjust to a changing market dies. A church that cannot adjust to a changing culture dies. And in, no limits on God. No limits on God. Celebration. Amen? All right. I was going to have question and answer today. I got to do that when I had it the third session uh, before, and I just got carried away here and covered too much territory. Uh, I hope that helped you. Next week, like I said, I will not be here, and I don't 